What's going on everyone and welcome to Method in the Madness. This is the podcast that not only delves deep into design and creativity, but also leadership, productivity and personal development. And this is episode 22 and my next guest is a gentleman called Simon Coley, who is the director and co-founder of Karma Drinks, a fantastic soft drinks brand. And Simon and I were introduced through another guest called uh, Chris from Keep Cup, who appeared on the show last year. So we both decided to make good use of our lockdown life and get this episode recorded. Episode was a lot of fun. Simon is a total legend, sharing some incredible stories about the origination of Karma Drinks and their purpose, visiting Sierra Leone for the first time, and he was also pretty candid about some of the turbulent times that they're currently facing with the COVID-19 crisis. So don't worry, you won't be disappointed. And this episode of the podcast is brought to you by iZettle's Forever Local Project. As many of you know, I now work at iZettle and during these difficult times, they have started a fantastic initiative which I asked if I could promote on the show. So, iZettle have always been a champion of local businesses and believe that these businesses are the heart and soul of the local community. That's why they have launched a new website called Forever Local. Forever Local connects local communities with independent businesses and the communities around them. Through Forever Local website, you're able to search and discover businesses local to you, helping you support the community around you during these tough times. And if you are a local business yourself, you can use the website to tell potential customers how they can support your business during these difficult times, whether it's in-store, online, or even through a new delivery service you may be offering. So whether you're looking to discover and support the local businesses in your area, or you are a business owner supporting the people in your community, then you should definitely check out iZettlesForeverLocal.com. That's F-O-R-E-V-E-R-L-O-C-L-A.com, ForeverLocal.com. It's a fantastic initiative, so check it out today and help support local businesses near you. Now, without much further ado, please welcome Simon Coley to Method in the Madness. Simon, thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, how is lockdown life treating you? Well, today it's sunny, so I, you know, obviously a lot more up to optimistic when I can see outside and see the park that's across the estate where we live. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's it's unusual, but not all terrible. Yeah, uh, this uh, episode's kind of been in the making for a while because we've been trying to arrange it for quite some time. But I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show, so thank you. Oh, no, I really appreciate it. And it's given me an excuse to go back through some of the shows. So listening to people like Aaron Drakeman has been kind of a good vibe for the day. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Sunny weather, Alan Draplin's dulcet tones. What else? What else could you need? We were uh, introduced to one another by another guest, Chris Baker, who was on the show. Um, and prior to that, I had, I had heard of Karma Cola, but I had never actually honestly tasted any of your products which i have recently thanks to uh andrew dobie's made brave launch party which oh, was serving a, yeah. a whole bunch of cocktails with gingerella and lemonade lemony lemonade and all sorts so that was awesome you used to um, like us kiwis you all know each other yeah <laughs> yeah uh, uh, andrew's great and well man he certainly knows how, knows how to throw a party as well 
fucking hell. Well, I wish I'd got up for that. And uh, when this is all over, I definitely will. Yeah, yeah. His new the new digs are something to be admired. That's for certain. He's been a prolific poster during this time. I'm really impressed with his output at the moment. There's so much creativity considering yeah. like at home. Yeah, he's like a kid in a candy store. Um, really enthusiastic guy. Love that guy. Um, but yeah, prior to uh, coming, like I didn't really know much about the story and purpose behind Carmichael. I had seen it in you know shelves of eateries and things like that. But could you tell us a little bit about what kind of Carmicola is all about and how you got started? Well, I mean, it's interesting that you say you'd seen it because it's that's a big part of the thing that I really kind of take pride in is that people, when people see it, they notice it and hopefully remember it. That you know, a big point of the way we engage with <clears throat> with people is to try and get them to notice our labels. Uh, you know, when you're trying to take on a a pretty big market that has plenty of choices, getting people's attention just through their eyeballs is a pretty good way to start yeah absolutely and it's kind of where i started like i used to sweep the floors of a printing press in christchurch new zealand as a kid and always loved the spell of printer's ink and the idea of being a designer or a you know printer and uh you know my kind of skills developed there and not that i do all these designs we have some amazing artists that work with us but it's always been you know i really uh, exciting part of the of the whole mix and you know although just soft drinks we do do uh quite a bit to try and make them relevant and interesting and and do kind of fulfill that mission of ours the karma and our name to make sure that the people that produce all the ingredients do well out of it too and that's kind of where the idea started that we my business partners chris and matt morrison and i were at that stage and we were thinking what we would do next um in our lives and we had this idea that we could start a company that would have that sort of virtuous intent of making food and drink that would be great for the land that it was grown, the ingredients were grown, the, the people who grew them and the, the people who, who consumed them. And the idea turned into a company we called All Good, which was, you know, the good to the power of three thing that we would make it good for the planet, the people and and ourselves, or people mm. consuming. Um, it seemed a really obvious way to do it, but you know the first complexity was just actually sourcing ingredients. And fortunately, Chris is amazing at finding organic produce, and we had enough experience within the team to be able to start looking for products. And you know, one of the first things we did was was uh, bringing uh, fresh tropical fruit from Samoa to New Zealand, thinking we could support our Pacific neighbours' economies by bringing what was great organic produce from there back home. That went reasonably well, um, but we did learn that we didn't know a lot about perishable goods and we're probably compelled to try and figure out how to make them have a longer shelf life. <laughs> and that led to the colder thing when we were going, well, in naming that idea, that, that kind of, we were looking at bringing coconuts and chocolate and coffee from the islands. And I've been thinking maybe a preface for all of those product of karma would explain the relationship between the producers and consumers and that that's quite quite a tidy way to to differentiate us and, and explain the you know why we were doing it yeah so we're thinking i was thinking oh karma coconut sounds good karma coffee you know that sounds pretty good but then out of that popped karma cola i thought wow <laughs> 
<laughs> I wonder where Culver comes from. And we were lucky enough to be uh, visited by a woman called Harriet Lamb, who was then the the, uh, the CEO of Fair Trade International. And oh wow, she was she came out to help us with our banana business. It's all good business. And she said, "Oh, oh we talked to her at dinner after she had done a talk with us." And I asked her, "Did you?" Do you know anyone, or do, is there such a thing as like a fair trade cola? We've been doing a bit of research and trying to see if we could find some. And she said, you know, there isn't one that fair trade certify, but I do know someone that's worked with fair trade that would be able to prob- would know how to find it. This guy called Albert Tucker, who she had worked with in sort of pioneering the fair trade movement around bananas and chocolate and coffee. He was a coffee trader and a... Oh wow! Um, a person that's been very much involved in that whole movement. So she introduced us to Albert, and that really what is what kicked it off. Albert is a native of Sierra Leone. He was over there, and we we found out from him that it was something we could, you know, that that he could help us source and uh, introduced us to some villages that the brief being we need to make sure they benefited from it because we needed to make the karma quite tangible. <laughs> Like yeah, yeah. Show that we can be accountable for whatever money we put back down that back in that direction, you know, the paying forward thing. Uh, and that that kind of kicked it off. We, you know, Albert was very helpful, and we learned a lot in a short time about how to get hold of cola. That's cool. Like it's kind of amazing. Like I've spoken to a couple of people who have kind of got this very like you know social business aspect to what they do like yourselves and like on the surface of it to you know joe average uh you know setting up a company selling something and then giving money back to somebody sounds like it should be incredibly simple but it's amazing the complexity involved in it by the sounds of things well i think with any modern product because you you know it used to be that if you wanted to start a soft drink company you had to kind of build a factory you know you it was pretty hard to uh be able to find other supplies that could help you so you know although it is just a soft drink and they're pretty common product to make and buy and sell there's a lot of complexity in making one you know you've got to get a bottle a cap a label you know in the case of our kayla cola there's like 14 or 16 different ingredients then you've got to put them all in one place these ingredients in our case come from all over the world so if we're going to add this extra layer of being um, environmentally low impact, socially responsible, yeah, yeah. all those choices that you make about what goes into your product, you've got to make three or four more times. So, you know, who are we buying from? How are they being paid? What What's the impact of on them socially of the purchase? You know, are we doing the best thing we can ethically with that relationship? What's the expectation of the, you know, waste in production? If we're going to say we're we're doing the best thing by the environment, can we quantify it? You know, can we stand up to scrutiny? So we look for these third parties like the Fair Trade Association, uh, the, uh, and uh, organic um, certifiers, to make sure that we're being held. Um, I don't know, uh, uh, to that scrutiny and and uh, Yeah. But, you, you know, you can't say this stuff without it meaning something. And, it, and like you say, it, on the surface, it seems pretty straightforward. But if you really want to 
stand up for those things. You've got to look pretty deeply into all of those aspects to make sure they do stand up. Yeah. You could maybe, like, you know, especially these days, somebody will find out if there is something to scrutinize about it. You'll be found out pretty quick these days, I'd imagine. (laughs) I mean, information is there for everyone. It's not, you know, when you get to the nitty gritty, it can get pretty confusing. Like, there are lots of different ways of doing this. But we've been, you know, recently we've been going through this B Corp assessment, thinking how what's a good holistic way to look at this. Because, you know, we do have a lot of um, certifications and, and ways of presenting our credentials. And it's quite good. You know, it's quite holistic. It looks at the way we operate as a, a responsible organisation with our staff, at the way we look at our suppliers and the communities that we supply and sell to. You know, there are some ways of thinking about this that are becoming uh, easier because you don't have to do it all yourself anymore. It's frankly yeah. like the B Corp thing that works because it's sort of thought through to be universally applicable. And I, I think the world's changing a lot. You know, you know that a Google search will, will uncover quite a lot. Yeah. <laughs> end up to that to start with. But it also introduce you to a lot of things too. So there's, I think there's as much help out there for businesses like ours these days as there are obstacles to overcome yeah yeah it's interesting like um just kind of did a bit of research like i you know pretty much everyone in a typically developed country let's say grows up with cola or soda drinks all around them from pretty much the word go it's amazing and i still it still kind of freaks me out to think that you know in the hierarchy of needs <laughs> as humans, you know, yeah. worshiping a brand that doesn't do much to, for you other than refresh you is kind of weird, right? But it, yeah, yeah, especially yeah, especially like if it if it, I mean if it like I don't know cured you of diseases or you know like it, there's there's nothing really well, good about it, the the big the big brands. It'll give you some energy, right? There's obviously sugar. There's there's flavor in it. You know, it's a great feeling, and that that whole cold burst of bubbles that you get from a cola is a really uplifting thing and I'm, oh my God, I'm salivating right now yeah <laughs> but you know it's not that important yeah yeah but the guy read something like yeah. there's like over one million colas drank every minute or something like that yeah so the i mean I, again this is staggering right there's shy of two billion cola branded drinks consumed in the world every day now that's uh one big company it doesn't include the other big cola company and it's probably all of their beverages, so there's probably water in that as well. But that's it's still a hell of a lot of liquid in packaging. So if you think of it from a, like an environmental point of view, you go right. My God, that stuff that's been taken out of the ground or from the forest, where all the ingredients come, put in some sort of container and shipped to someone to be consumed. That's yeah. phenomenal, right? That's like that's so much stuff being moved. Yeah, especially when a lot of it is, depending on who you speak to, can be classed as some unhealthy poison. (laughs) Packaging that isn't really needed or is going to end up somewhere else where it becomes a problem for someone else. So that's the thing about you start taking these sort of high moral ground claims of being good and karma and everything. You know, it's a rod for your back because you really got to think about that whole, you know, what they call the cradle-to-cradle lifestyle. A life cycle, not lifestyle, sorry, but the <laughs> life cycle 
I guess it does become a lifestyle. But the life cycle is important because you've got to know what happens after it leaves your warehouse. You know how yeah. if you're going to be selling that much stuff, if you know if most of it ends up in the ocean, you're not doing a good thing. Yeah, yeah. Like I remember Chris uh, from Keep Cup and he was on the podcast. Was talking, just said something that's just you know like one of these lines that really strikes you. And it was just like you know if you were truly like economical company or like like you wouldn't make something well he said to me i I hope he doesn't share it i hope this is okay so you know we were having one having one of these conversations on a panel and he said he said publicly said you know the best thing you can do is just drink your coffee out of a cup at the cafe don't take it yeah now now, you know for someone like chris to say you don't actually need my product (laughs) (laughs) it's <laughs> all yeah we go well you know but that, that is the answer and he was going well it's you know it's great that people have convenience and this whole package drinks thing is about that that you have the refreshment you want wherever you want it you know there's a whole philosophy around the commerce of drinks companies being able to have one of their products at arm's reach to anyone who needs one yeah that's nirvana if you're in that game right but you also go, well, isn't it good just to sit down and enjoy that cup of coffee right next to where it was made by someone who made it for you with that care and take the time to savour it? And, you know, that's one of the things that seems to be resonating right now is that now that everyone has to take the time to savour the things they make, like we have dinner here as a family every night. It's been a while since we've done that. You know, there's those moments that are... Sort of because of our convenience lifestyles become less precious, perhaps you know, or something that that is sort of overlooked because there's alternatives that are a bit faster or more in inverted commas convenient. Yeah, yeah, not necessarily good for us, you know. Now, like I think the whole isolation thing, like I hope you know, like this is obviously I think it's a big, a big lesson for many people for a variety of different reasons, but I think. You know, people use kind of like you say, like people use their life, their job, their hobbies, their work, whatever it may be, as like a distraction from really actually dealing with the kind of stuff going through their head or what's going on at home. And I think this is probably going to be quite a healthy time for people as well. Yeah, I think. I mean, it's it's kind of I I already worry about this because it's partly partly my job to slip into these platitudes, you know, to go. Mm. Although it's shit, it's going to be all right, you know that that we're here to help and I made some posts about that and you know I feel strongly about being responsible as an organization in a time like this and figuring out how to actually be relevant because like I've said soft drinks who actually needs them you know our big challenge is to make them relevant and the relevant yeah. we've made for them is saying it's it's okay to drink this one because it's actually going to do some good I mean it's got sugar and it's like a soft drink you know that and you love that flavor or taste but you can rest assured that someone else has benefited from this as well as you. So that gives me confidence that we can sort of tell these stories and and be useful to people because someone is benefiting from it. Yeah. And you think, how do you take that into a world where, you know, all of those um, top of mind choices that are sort of made automatically, like going to a supermarket to buy something, become something you dwell on a bit longer. You know, you go, do I really need that? You know, I've got to do my shopping. I'm going to have to carry it because, I, you know, I know that I'm probably not going to get an uh, online delivery as far as I used to. I might have to walk yeah. to get it. A whole bunch of different decisions made. So, you know, for a company like us in that context, you go, well, what what can we do that isn't 
venal, that isn't like us exploiting this opportunity. Now, it's <laughs> it's very hard for us to exploit it because 90% of the customers we have are shut. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I don't feel too bad about, you know, taking uh, advantage of a situation that, you know, shouldn't be taken advantage of because we just can't. But you still have to think about your role in all this as an organisation, and I think that's what's what's been. However, though, like, would you would you say you're like you know if you're taking advantage of a situation like this, like with a company like yours that is, you know, genuinely making a difference to the people that are even making the ingredients in the farms in Sierra Leone, like, is that hey, taking advantage when you're benefiting other people? Like, yeah. I can understand if Coca Cola were doing it, but if you know, like, you're doing it and it. That you know you you're directly having an impact in other people's lives, then surely that's not taking advantage. Well, that's just the bug I was looking for. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, well, the thing is, I come down to this because you do a bit of you know soul searching. You go, actually, the more we sell, the more good we do. So yeah, okay, we just need to find a way of selling it to people. And it's like talking to you about your day job. You know that yeah, when you are dealing with customers that need a hand because they're in the hospitality trade. You know, you kind of have to help them go, most of your customers aren't doing what we had expected them to be doing at this time of year, especially for us when coming into spring, it's like when all our sales start. Yeah, of course. You, know? you go, so how do we get to them? What's the, the, you know, and how do we help? And then the ecosystem of businesses we work with and you work with, like hospitality outlets, you know, we've got to be useful for them too because they're, they're actually our customers. It's them selling to their customers that gets us our money. Yeah, and those are the challenges. Like, right, a lot of them are, you know, terrible cliche, but they're pivoting from selling from their coffee machines or you know the restaurants they're in to doing home deliveries or helping people by providing subscriptions to coffee and things like that. We do mm. all through a lot of coffee outlets because there's a synergy between us having authentic, you know, uh, provenance around our ingredients and you know the sort of third wave of coffee that also have a similar story to tell about provenance so yeah of course that's the crowd we kind of run awesome i i was uh reading in a, a few interviews that you've like referred to karma cola as a business with a sustainable ethical supply chain and not a charity um could you tell us just a bit about like kind of what you mean by that so it's um one of the things I was really wary of is that we don't need a lot of cola to make a drink. And to, to call ourselves Karma, we're in that one product. And we've got a whole range of these things, but in this little yeah. original hero product, I knew that if we, we knew that if we bought the cola, it still wouldn't be that much money for these guys. It's kind of, we probably need to pay them more than the cost of the ingredient just to make right, it. Okay. But then I'm going, well, is that charity? And I'm going, no, it's actually, it's trade because. I really want this to to be an equitable trading relationship and not one where there's an imbalance, you know, where we appear to be gifting money rather than it being earned. And I think yeah. there's, a, there's a significant difference here, and that's that what we've seen, because we have this, I hope, equitable relationship, and it's something that Albert's very been very good at managing for us and still will, and that's that they understand that when they show benefit from what they've earned uh, going back into the communities, it helps us tell the story to people like, you know, listeners to this podcast. Hmm. And it, it means that we're, you know, they've kind of, they're empowered by it. They're not just 
holding their hands out and we're not just kind of put, peeling off the, the Leone notes, you know. We're, we're going, we have sold this many drinks, that's worth this much to you, it's a percentage of our revenue that we've dedicated to this fund. Now we need to make sure it's used really well because it's not that much money compared to, say, NGOs working in these sorts of areas. Mm. So what we've, and then this is a bit of DIY in this. And we, when we started, we went, look, if we're going to show that we are have this karma credibility, we don't know enough about developing, you know, rural economies to be sustainable, to be experts at it. But we shouldn't assume that these guys don't know either. Yeah. <laughs> so let's just ask them. And that was the first kind of straightforward, but, but you know, in retrospect, kind of, it's not an orthodox way to do this, but this sort of development. Really. And um, so we said, like, that one of the things that was great about the way it was set up is that we work with a, communi- a, a com- committee of community leaders that are all fairly democratically chosen in this area, in, in TY, in the Gola Rainforest in Sierra Leone in West Africa. And they wow. come to these decisions themselves and they sort of lobby Albert and Michael, who's uh, Michael Salu, who's our sort of foreman down there and say look we want to do this we want to you know can we build a classroom and in that example we go well we're not in the business of building schools because if we proclaim we are everyone's going to want a school and actually we don't have that much money Hmm. but if this if that project was supported by the community and the government we're happy to be a catalyst for it because then we'll know that it won't be up to us to do the next one. That you'll have to have this really good kind of understanding of who's responsible for the outcome. And the local yeah, you have to be responsible, the government have to be, because, you know, these are things that governments should be responsible for ultimately. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, let, let's not try and, you know, be the kind of, <laughs> it's a terrible thing, but they're like the white saviour, we'll come and build this for you and then fuck off. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, no, no, you're good. You know, we'll... um. We'll help you do it. But, but oh, there are systems that should be working here. If they're not working, let's be the catalyst to make them work. So that, and, you know, that's kind of worked. We've, we've done that a few times. And the weird thing is, because there's ownership of the outcome, they build these things. We don't have to send a, a, like a group of people in of construction engineers. Hmm. We just buy the materials and help with the plans and organize them a bit and give them a hand. So it's more like... Um, it's more like turning up to the, you know, you, I don't know, the, the, your family farm or, you know, if you've got a relative who's doing something who's asked you for a hand. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a bit of a working bee. Now, it's not quite that simple or, or glib, but it is, it is useful to have that sort of on-the-ground relationship where we can go, well, building a bridge is only going to cost us a few thousand dollars because the materials are some of that. The effort, the actual labour, some of the people in the village are going to contribute to. Well, we can we can kind of do it on a budget, and and that's been a real eye opener for me because you think that light touch doesn't just make it less expensive to do, but it means it gets done. Yeah, absolutely. People who are benefiting from it are actually involved in the doing, and you can see the like tangible effect you're you're having, I suppose, on these communities. You know. Yeah, and it's kind of some glue too, and not that these people need to need extra community. I mean, they've got great ways of relating to each other. It's good social fabric there, but 
there is a sense of, of pride and, and a kind of community spirit around these projects, and that's also pretty awesome. Hmm. Uh, how, like, like, have you been out to Sierra Leone yourself, or how often do you get out? Like, what's it like kind of well, down there? The first time I went, it was just, it was completely surreal. Like, Matthew, one of my business partners, and Albert and I went out, and it was probably a year since we'd sold the first bottles. Okay. And once we got the, you know, the first recipe worked out and made it and produced the first box, we sent it over there. And, uh, you know, the, the group and the community that received it were kind of, I mean, surprised. And weirdly, a, a, a few years after that, visiting again, one of the, the local village storyteller told this story to the Paramount Chief and a few other people and us who were kind of gathered around this thing about how they got this request from these people on the other side of the world in New Zealand for some cola nuts. I was listening to this thinking, the chronology and the story's a bit wrong, you know, what's, what's going on here? And, and yeah. quite critical of it, thinking, well, that's not how it happened. And I thought, no, this is exactly how it happened. You know, he was telling this local mythology now. You know, it was nothing to do with us. It was to do with his view of the world and what mm. happened. And what had happened was these weirdos from the other side of the world and uh, and then they gave it to them, and they didn't hear anything, and that was kind of they sort of forgot about it, right? They, but they gave us the gift of colonel because they never invoiced us for. It. I don't think we ever probably paid for the first shipment, but you know that we got like five kilograms of colonel, which was from their perspective a gift to us, which is great. And then the next thing that arrived was this box of drinks, and that you know that's a big gap. From yeah, <laughs> in you know both actually in time and everything, it's like wow, that's what happened. And the next thing that arrived was money, was this commitment to the karma of paying back for every one of those drinks that we sold, mm. and that was you know the next level of surprise for them. And the guy that was helping us manage this, a, a guy called Doctor Hans Peter Müller who's with uh, Hill for a German NGO over there who sort of helped us, you know, figure out how to do some of these things. He said, and he's a very dry German guy, because he was the one that we sent the check to. He just went, wow. No, like, <laughs> that's not what we expected. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a good wow, though. Oh, yeah, it was great, because he's like, he's, you know, he's, he, he doesn't crack it on. He's a lovely man, but... There's a, there's a really kind of dry sense of humor that comes through that Germanic guy who's seen everything. You know, he's been yeah, it's in true. Africa most of his life. So, and it, so it, was, it was one of those beautiful moments. You think, yeah, that's great. That's, you know, that doesn't happen very often. Anyway, um, the, the, the storyteller's kind of going, and then we decided we'd build this bridge. You know, the, the thing that we wanted to do with it was to use the money to join the two parts of this old village the old and the new village together and replace a bridge that had probably gone during the civil war and now was just bamboo and got washed away every rainy season. Oh, wow. So, you know, wind back to the first time I went there, having traveled from New Zealand to the UK to Morocco and then like, it's a 48 hour journey. And then there's a whole lot of trekking through um, the rainforest to get to this place. We finally get there, and there's, um, I mean, it's fantastic because it kind of 
given that we've Matt and I have been doing all this traveling, we've sort of been bombarded by all these sensations, amazing lush green rainforest, you know, and and pretty warm and um, and this drums beating and oh, wow. these really beautifully dressed woman that had sort of greeted us at the edge of the forest. Um, you know, <laughs> it's a barrage of yeah, yeah. clearly dehydrated. <laughs> Exactly, you're kind of pinching yourself, going, "What is happening here?" <laughs> and they, you know, they they come up to us and beckoned us down into this track, down down a hill, uh, sort of into the forest, and um, we saw as the kind of clear. It was firstly these these young men dressed as devils came and danced around us, and they had these really ferocious masks on and they're on stilts and dancing to this drum beat, and like it was full on. It was great. It's like being in the circus, you know but in amazingly green, lush rainforest. And one of them who thought, you know, because we must have looked pretty, I don't know, freaked out, sort of lifted his mask up so he could grin at me <laughs> just to say, it's okay, you know, it's going to be all right. And then <laughs> carried on, and they, they ushered us down, and they, the whole village was there, all dressed up on the bridge. Oh, wow. And that was the moment you're going, far out. <laughs> you know, Jeez. we did that. Um, and never look back, you know, something like that happens, you kind of have to honour it. Must be pretty crazy to, like, you know, be in the middle of a rainforest kind of down there thinking, fuck, this is, like, where we get our stuff from. (laughs) Like, just, like... Well, you think of all those trips you do to and from an airport, right? Where you're going, you're travelling somewhere if you're going to a place like this, and you go past all these warehouses and big containers and trucks and all this, the stuff of modern commerce, of international trade. And you end up in a place like this where someone's got a colon up in their hand. You know, you go, it's just, it's, it is, I know I'm maybe laboring the point, but it did seem pretty mind-boggling. You go, that's all. No, it- no, I can imagine. Mm. As well as probably just, yeah, just what an experience. To not only have that moment of, been struck by like oh wow like it's literally this is where it happens but also seeing the kind of fruits of the labor of the effect you've had by having everyone on the bridge you know but that's the thing that's the sort of that's the uh what do you call it there's a, there's a word for that sort of imposter syndrome imposter syndrome you're kind of going we just made some drinks you know yeah Maybe it wasn't that we did. and then you see what's happening is kind of exponentially cool yeah <laughs> <laughs> Imagine what you could do if you got a bit more organised. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned just like briefly before I asked you that question, like trialing out the kind of first recipe, and just like it just kind of made me think, like, how difficult is it to not just go, I want it to taste like Pepsi or Coca Cola. <laughs> like, like the right like, question, Greg, because you go right. What is cola? You know. Yeah, cola is a concept, and it's a concept that costs four billion a year. Mm. That's the advertising value. Yeah, probably not this year, but maybe the year before that. Of uh, money spent to talk about cola in the public domain, right? So, cola is as much an expectation as a flavour, right? Mm. This is my view of it. When I was a kid in the seventies, um, there were songs about that drink. Yeah, and they were they were great. They were happy songs, you know. They were things that made you feel good, and they they still sort of resonate for me because I kind of think, well, you make that that true that you know, 
teaching the world to sing in perfect harmony thing true, it would be awesome. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of the sentiment that came out of the, these big creative campaigns around yeah. around happiness and joy and sharing things are, um, are in, it sort of influence your taste buds. And we know that because of the, the challenges between Pepsi and Coke. That, that the one that wins isn't necessarily the one that tastes best because it's so subjective. But if yeah. you're going to go into that market, you've got to taste like it. Because otherwise, yeah. you're not polar. That's what sort of permanently tattooed on our taste buds is this idea that's reinforced by the, you know, the many, many times you've drunk the stuff. Mm. So you kind of have to go, what, what, what's an authentic cola flavor? And we basically went, how do we make something that's close to that out of organic ingredients that we recognize? So we went, right, we, we've got the cola nut. We're going to, you know, break that down into, it's incredibly bitter. So it's, it's a really hard flavor to work with. And cola is, is probably best explained as the tension between all the ingredients. So super bitter cola nut, as soon as you nibble this stuff, and it just takes all the moisture out of your mouth. Oh, wow. So it was probably used in the original recipe as a tonic, as a stimulant. You know, when you when they uh, still ritually use it in West Africa, it's uh, it makes you talkative. You know, it's a it's a really great sharing. You know, that whole idea of of sharing friendship with cola is from there. Well, yeah. not have intentionally been from there, but there is it resonates with what happens there because it's that sort of thing. It's for welcoming people. It's used in religious ceremonies. It's also inhibits appetite. So if you're walking through the jungle because there's no public transport and you're going to go a long way, you take cola with you to sort of ward off hunger pains. And it has a lot of medicinal um, properties. So it was probably in a tonic, you know, 150 years ago as a a pick-me-up. And that's why people would tolerate the bitterness. They go, oh, it's medicine. Oh, it's good. But what they wanted to do was make it more palatable. So sugar, vanilla, lemon oil and lemon juice. Um, and we tried to stimulate that. What What is a kind of synthesized flavor these days with natural and organic ingredients? So we've got lemon juice, lime juice, citrus uh, from oranges. And cola, the cola flavor is very citrusy. You know, if you smell a cola, you get a lot of that lemon, lime, right. and orange on the nose. Um, and it's also, it's kind of a sharpness in, in that first sip. When, it, when, it, when it's sort of fizzing up in the nose, you can get you get that sort of citrusy um, sharpness. Um, and then it has a lot of spice in it. It's got cinnamon, nutmeg. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so all those things make it rounder and sort of warmer and um, and spicier, you know, but, but, but richer. And then one of the things that other companies use is a burnt sugar colouring, and we didn't want to do that. So we have a, um, a malted, a, a roast barley malt um, extract, which is organic, which gives it its colour, and it's a, a little bit of flavour. It's a little bit um, slightly savoury, I think. It's sort of an umami flavour in there, which sort of rounds out the... Um, the the, uh, the lemony sort of citrus flavors. Mm. The, the trick with one of these is that they are sweet, and one of the great things I know it's probably doesn't sound so great. One of the great things about these more familiar recipes is they use things like phosphoric acid, which is probably not a good thing to put in a drink, but 
No, it what, doesn't sound like it. What it does is when you have that first hit, which is quite sweet, you can't. You don't really want it to carry on all the way to the back of your mouth being that sweet. So the acid, and we've replaced this with lemon juice. We just use lemon juice to do it. Cuts through the sweetness, and it means you can take the next sip because otherwise ah. it's too sweet. So you need to get that balance, and it, it's the. I mean, there's some science in that, and I'm sure there's food technologists that can talk much more eloquently about it. But you know, you really want to be able to get that hit of sharp, sweet fizz on the front of your tongue but as you gulp a big swig of it the first time you drink it you don't want it to be so cloying that it makes you choke sweet drinks do that so you yeah. need that sort of acid to, to cut through the sweetness and you get that experience right and that's what makes it delicious because you, you know a hot day you're uh, you know you, i don't know been working or running or you're out on the beach and you open a cold can and you get that effervescent hit it's there's nothing better mm -hmm. You're making me like salivate. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm wishing it is that time at the moment, isn't it? It's like, <laughs> um, funny how happy hour creeps a bit forward when you're on lockdown. What's that, sorry? But happy hour keeps creeping forward when we're on lockdown. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Well, we, we don't have happy hours in Scotland, so <laughs> uh, we can't be trusted, evidently. <laughs> they're, they're not allowed to discount alcohol in Scotland for obvious reasons. <laughs> Um, kind of going back to your branding, which is like one of the things, you know, many things to love about your brand, but this is one of the things that personally I love being a designer, uh, is that what I do love is that they all, they all differ, like, you know, from the ginger ale to the caramacola, uh, they all differ and are individually distinctive, but you can kind of tell they're all part of the same family, um, do you have like a particular, or did you have like a particular philosophy when it came to the kind of branding and design of the Carmacola products that you wanted to achieve? Or was it just kind of, oh, I really like this and just kind of see where it took you? I'd love to answer that with yes, that we were very strategic about it. But actually, <laughs> we did one. We did the did the cola. And the thing that drove that, the look and the, the style of the label was um, was thinking about the place it came from and just knowing that we needed to differentiate that, you know, we, we had to have something that was going to catch people's attention in a way that was delighting them because, the, you know, just the name in itself for me probably wasn't enough uh, as the, the sort of most dramatic aspect of the label. It felt like that would be a bit like all the others. Yeah. Um, we looked at, I worked with a group called Special in Auckland friends of ours who had helped us with the former business and I'd had a crack myself and I just wasn't that excited with the with the output I, I tried to turn the cola nut into something sort of anthropomorphic you know like a smiling shape oh. and tried to turn the type and karma cola into something you know with personality but it just felt a bit too cute so I was talking to Heath and Emma at Special and they said, let, let, let us come back to you with some ideas. And they basically put together some really interesting research and we looked at a whole lot of pictures. And, and amongst them were a couple of things that really, really took me. One was a kind of Mexican retablo votive painting where you have these everyday miracles like someone, you know, falling off a horse and, you know, not dying. And yeah. and uh, and they they asked one of these retablo painters to paint a little votive offering 
to the Lady of Guadalupe and it'll be the miracle of not dying off the horse or whatever. But there was one that had a an angel um, flying around a devil in this sort of circle. And I thought, you know, that, that's karma, right? That the good and the bad thing is actually a lot more exciting than just being good. You know, and there was something in the idea of this is a soft drink, right? Inherently, it's just a soft drink. But if we can do some good with it, we turn this commodity into a force of good, which was a bit, you know, probably over-laboring it a bit. But you're kind of thinking, how do you get that dynamic in this, that it's good because it's not bad? And the the angel-devil thing worked really well. And you were thinking, there's actually a story. And, and Beck, who illustrated the, the label, really got deeply into this. Because as soon as we sort of talked to her, we first, sorry, I'll backtrack a little bit. The other, no, 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 no. the other thing I saw was this great thing. It was like a snake eating its tail with what goes around comes around. It was so rock and roll, I thought, you know, that's kind of cool that we can have that nice. attitude and that what goes around comes around is what this is about. But it's a positive spin on that. Right? So hmm. so I think maybe we can be a bit edgy with this. You know? For the first illustrator we got to look at the whole thing gave us this really gothic expression and it was awesome, but you knew it wouldn't sell a drink. It looked great, <laughs> it looked great tattooed. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't quite warm enough or folk, folksy enough. So, and, that, that, and then I thought, oh, this is hard, you know. It's how do we get to this point where it's kind of attractive uh, and the idea isn't over, isn't sort of overshadowing just the beauty of the thing or the, the simplicity of the thing. And um, we knew this woman, Beck Wheeler, who'd worked with us on our banana business. And I mean, James, who works with us, said, why don't we just give it to Beck? Yeah, that's a great idea. Like, let's get someone else to interpret it, who we know, so we can spend a lot more time. Instead of having, you know, this illustrator was in the, in the States, I think. We can mm. work through it. Because what I thought we felt felt like I needed to do anyway was with Heath and Emma and Beck was just, this is going to work, but we there is some craft in this, and we really need a, like a relationship that will let us get there. Beck was amazing, and she did a lot of drawings. In fact, today I've been going through them because we've got a, a new marketing person starting with us, and I wanted to give her the sort of backstory, so she's got the views. Oh, and I mean, this is like eight, eight, nine years ago now, but the drawings are still really great, and you can kind of see the process we went through to get to something that was. I mean, it's not the most simple label, but it is an an interpretation of a West African deity who's also good and bad. She's called Mummy Water. <laughs> and Mummy Wada lives, you know, in the in the her spirit lives amongst the villages we work with. So the serendipity was while we were looking at this stuff, we were learning about the culture of the place it came from, and this mashup was just beautifully synchronized because Mummy Wada is like a mermaid, and she brings good fortune and bad fortune depending on how you treat her or you treat the land. Uh, and she's the reason that the last six chiefs of the village that we principally trade with have been a woman, because they're mm. like the embodiment of the spirit. So the, this thing was getting kind of a bit weird because it was so kind of close to what we were trying to do and great. Yeah. Bit. But Beck really beautifully dug deep into that, the sort of artifacts of the, the sort of folk style of the place. And that's where that, that character on the front came from. Or the two oh, parts wow. of the character. 
So we've got this heavily illustrated bottle that's kind of dense in story, but just looks great. So, you know, there was enough in it to be visually delightful uh, and not overcomplicated. And that's what set us going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was kind of laboring again, but it felt like it was a great artifact. And, and seeing it now after so long, it's still, you know, it's been the, the bottles and the cans we've done have been through a few different iterations, but it still holds together. Yeah, I know. It looks great. The next, like, what an incredible story as well. Yeah, and it's like that's the thing you can't put on the back of a bottle. You know, it's kind of, we have, we've got, <laughs> there's a lot of stories to tell, but. What is it they say that you've got about 0.3 seconds to get someone's attention on the shelf? <laughs> so trying to condense all that, just it meant that there was a lot to reveal, I suppose, over time. And one of the great things about the way we do this is that people who are interested can find out more. You know? Well, it's like one of these cans and bottles that, you know, you kind of find a new gem in it. Every, like when you're sitting, you know, just, you know, yeah. whether it's at a party or whether it's in your back garden in the sun, just like twirling the can in your hand, you kind of discover new bits each time. It's really great. Yeah, and there's enough of that detail. I, think, I mean, that's that, that's what happened the next one. You know, we, we kind of thought we'd do the same thing again. We'd ask Beck to draw, because the Gingerella was the next product we did, and this is where... My favourite. Yeah, and, and that, it's, it's such a great flavour, and ginger's such a great thing. But we tried to do the same thing and go, we're getting this from this time from Sri Lanka. Maybe we can use something that's uh, you know relevant culturally there that'll connect the place to the people that are buying it. So we looked at all sorts of sort of funny interpretations of Sri Lankan things like tigers and monkeys and Beck did again, I looked through these drawings and I didn't Beck did a great job of all this crazy stuff. But it just looked a bit like we were trying to be like the other one. Mm. what we're trying to do but it, it it somehow made the cola thing look less impressive because there was this other one that was trying to be like it next to it if that makes sense. <laughs> so you go can you does this this way of doing it actually translate to a range of products and it, it was feeling a bit wrong so the thing about it and we're also thinking of the name and raha who was working with us went why don't have you thought of Gingerella? It just, I just love the name. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. What a great thing to call a drink. You know, you kind of already know that it's this probably sassy, um, you know, Cinderella, Barbarella. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's and, so funny. You kind of go, well, maybe that's it. You know, that, and that, that really changed it. You kind of go, well, that doesn't look anything like anything we've drawn. What does Gingerella look like? And that's what set the next kind of journey off we went right and I, I rang back and said look I mean the, the color thing's great but I think we're going to need to do this differently and I, I wanted to, to, to work with a different illustrator for it and she understood so we talked to another friend who's really good at the kind of illustration that Ginger Ella became and he again it was sort of like a casting thing we kind of went through she you know she um just, what's her hair like you know what's her what sort of yeah. does she she the Mona Lisa, you know, is she is she Jane Fonda? You know, how can how do you make the enigma work, you know? Oh, it must have been such a fun design process. Well it was amazing because we basically cast hairstyle. You know, I mean, is it Jimi Hendrix Fro or is it Gene Shrimpton, you know, lying back in a David Payne yeah. with her hair flying around like like um the juices, you know. So 
and that's where it came from. In, in the end, the model was kind of like Gene Shrimpton, you know, this, mm. you know, wonderful hair. <laughs> and <laughs> one thing that came through was this, at the same time, there are a lot of ginger drinks in New Zealand that were being traded on by kind of taking the mickey out of red-headed people. Right, okay. And there was a bit of flack for it too. And, and it was kind of going, well, yeah, maybe maybe this is bullying. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> we go, well, you know, let's just make it a great thing. Like red hairs are awesome. So that was kind of what it was about. But there's this there's this sort of duality to it where this character is like Mother Nature with a makeover. Like ginger is such a great kind of healthy ingredient that, mm. that comes from. But we've sort of modernized this this hippie idea. And the other thing is that she's absolutely standing up for, for this weird, like redheadedness could almost be sort of acceptable racism. So she's basically just thanks <laughs> for any minority, you know. And that really, That's awesome. people, you know, we didn't really put it out there, but we found people with tattoos and. Oh my God, and, that's amazing. Embracing this character. And, you know, she's been on several women's marches. She's sort of a. She's like, you know, the great thing about this is that the characters, especially the Gingerella, because as soon as they became more human, like even Lemmy, the, the sort of yeah, the Lemmy, um, the there was even more identification with the characters from social media and people wanting posters or oh wow artwork they could tattoo. A Gingerella poster would be fucking ace. Oh yeah, I've got. Oh, I'll send you one. I mean, there's. There are a bunch of these things, and that's one of the, one of my challenges that we should be doing. This is why I love that uh, interview with Aaron, like the rising mm. king of the world. Yeah, it's just we, we should be doing some merch because there's so much potential there. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Wow, like it's like so much kind of story behind that. I love it. Yeah, and then Lemmy, you know, he's uh, we thought, well, lemons aren't supposed to be lucky, so we'll make a lucky one. <laughs> and he's, uh, you know, he's sort of the cool things about him is that, like, the casting uh, sessions for Lemmy were long. You know, M Matt Campbell, who drew him, must have drawn about fifty of them. Like, <laughs> yeah, looks too creepy. You know, looks too too out of it. You know, looks too happy. Until we got to, you know, this kind of another slightly enigmatic whistling lemon, and then it was like, what's he listening to? You know, what's going on in his head? So again, this stuff that the universe is throwing back with, to us is, you know, people coming up with the songs that Lemmy's listening, whistling. And, oh wow, and, that's awesome! Yeah, and more, a few more tattoos. Um, yeah, what's it like to see, like you know, your brand tattooed on somebody? Oh, it's pretty worrying at first, and then you, because <laughs> some of them aren't that great. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's funny. I met this guy who was marketing. Uh, is it Strongbow Cider? And Strongbow had this weird phenomenon of people just wanting that archer on their arms. And so they got a tattooist to do it. He said, turn up and we'll tattoo it on you. I thought, well, that's ballsy. Like, yeah. I mean, I'm not sure I, I feel good about hiring a tattooist to start tattooing lemony on people. But if they wanted to, I think I'd let them, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so you kind of think, well, you know, the people have identification with these things. They're not really ours anymore. That's what's so great. You know, that that's like the best 
best kind of design, you know, when people kind of take it and do their own thing with it and kind of create this persona around them. Well, I think it's it's that ad- ad- adaptation or adoption of things because, you you know, they help you tell your story for whatever reason. And you can read anything into it you want. But what I do like about it is that they've, they've been, they have a life beyond what we made them for. And, hmm. I, you know, I don't mind if they're connected back or not. I'm just kind of, you know, part of me is quite excited about the idea that, you know, someone likes them, you know, and, and is, wants to do something with them. And, and there's that also that kind of outsource creativity that being some material for someone else's expression is quite cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I also loved uh, your Black Friday thing that you did, the 0% off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that was a great campaign. Yeah, it's a, like we got so many little ones like that. We did, the, you know, one of the things about Ginger Ella is that that style can be reinterpreted. So hmm. we um, we did a ginger fella for the royal wedding, the most recent one. Ah, brilliant! And uh, there is out, out there in the um, on the internet pictures of bottles that we produced of ginger fella, which is Harry in the same style. It went ballistic, like it was. Oh wow! Well, we didn't sell them, but we made some so we could. We have been supporting this thing called Redhead Day, which is like a pro redhead campaign and this wonderful woman um emma kelly had has sort of championed it and it's been her baby for a long time and she's been absolutely amazing she got in touch with us once probably six years ago and said uh, really love your gingerella i have this blog called ginger parrot um <laughs> i'd like to you know i'd like to to tell a story about you and I said, well, of course you know here's some product and then we discovered she had did these things every year called Redhead Day, so we got some stock for her for that. And then Redhead Day, it turned out, was going to be on exactly the same day as the Royal Wedding. Ah, wow. So we celebrated with her and our friends at Kessels Kramer and came up with some of this stuff and had the oh, fantastic wow. day of, you know, uh, making these gingerella masks of Harry. <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine. That's awesome. And uh, yeah, it was awesome. It was great. And it's things like that that there's sort of uh, there's something in the DNA of what we do that just allows us to play. It's it's also it's not the most straightforward thing to really campaign from a kind of serious advertising perspective, <laughs> but it is quite great to do these campaigns because the spontaneity of those ideas capture other people and they want to yeah. involve. So, like our thing is. If you can, if we can, like with we do with the foundation, if we can engage people who are just excited about doing stuff with us, that's great, and that's probably an easier way for us to get noticed than buying their attention. Like earning, yeah, precisely. Yeah, of hard work is is so much more enjoyable. Yeah, absolutely. It seems, uh, well, I I say past few years, um, I, but my timing could always be off maybe like three to five years that there has been like a surge in kind of independent drinks companies you know people like alternatives to the big brands like you know the 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 cola coca-cola brands or the pepsi family brands or whoever like you know yourself like i'm also a big fan of like ugly water and stuff and things like that like where do you think the surge in the popularity in these independent drinks brands has come from? Like what is drawing people to these brands over the big name brands? Um, 
I think there's two things. One is just a shift in manufacturing technology and the ability for people to do these things without large amounts of capital. So like the guys at Ugly, who we know, and some other Dash, um, Nick's mm. there's a bunch of um, you know people I guess we run with who've been at it for a similar amount of time who've discovered that they can get co-packers to help them make stuff, that they can do it to start with, they can sort of bootstrap their businesses without vast amounts of investment, that you can kind of get a little niche for yourself and then build on it and having confidence to do that. And some of these people come from, uh, how do you say, probably some more experience in FMCGs too, to, to know that it's possible to do it. They've got a, they've got a few tricks up their sleeves. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, some are just incredibly motivated. Um, uh, there's a woman called, let me get this right, Laura, who has um, a kombucha brand who I meet occasionally. She's done a great job with LA Kombucha of making a really authentic product. And, you know, she has a little brewery. It's growing. She's got some backers now. But, you know, there's a group of people like that that have a really strong idea about their product and the quality of their product and the market that they're trying to get it to who've navigated through all these obstacles and, that we mm. before, like how do you make a supply chain work? Um, and I think uh, stories like that really help you find great people to work with too. You know, part, the, the people you work with really help. So, you know, I'm lucky that my partners have got a lot of experience too and, and now we, you know, there's probably 35 people that work with us around the world. So, you know, we've got a good team that help yeah. possible. But there is a point, you know, it's possible to do this stuff now without, like I said before, owning a factory because you can convince people to to pack for you and there's mm. ways of, um, of organising supply and managing operations and if you've got a, a, a way of getting to market and you can kind of sell small volumes to build the volume up enough to, to, to be confident to produce more. And then you get to a certain stage where you need more capital. And if you've got, if you've shown you can do it, if you've got a track record, then you know there are people interested in supporting you. So most of those businesses have been through those phases. Yeah. And I, and I like I say, you know, anyone can kind of make anything. I know it's a bold statement, but the the way you know the complexity around manufacturing has been simplified because those supply chains are have enormous amounts of technology around them that give you access. So yeah, sure. you, know, you can get on the internet and find suppliers. You can... Well, it's, it, it gets, you know, technically speaking, I'm oversimplifying it, but it gets easier every day. Like it's never going to get harder. No, I think the new theme, I what did I see the other day, it's when you can kind of, all right, so a, a promotional box, like I was saying, I might need a special box to do a, a thing with. I found an, a guy who I work with uh, sent me a link to an online service where you basically give them the dimensions, the artwork, and they'll post it to you. So years ago, I had to cut the piece of cardboard out to figure out how it was going to be made, hmm. get someone else to look at that, and a cardboard engineer would kind of figure it out, and then you'd go through three or four different prototypes. And then you'd have to get a different printer to put something on it. And it was, you know, they're not straightforward. This is basically a web service to make a yeah. box. You go, wow, you know, I could do that online. 
yeah. like printing well, you can get 20 books mate <laughs> yeah well like you know oh. we 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 recently were doing our wedding invites yeah uh and like just like you know moo.com like you know back in back in the day to get like embossed gold foiling yeah all these like kind of fancy effects like you have to go to like you know you know a a pretty big printing press company or whatever to do to get all these things yeah, yeah. however now if you if you know your way around uh in design or an illustrator you're quids in and the like you'd look at our invites and think we went and got them done somewhere fancy but just moo.com yeah i went, I went from looking for printers that could do as good a job but less for us to thinking you know what the time we save using moo is great and we can set up everything we, we did basically the same thing right that's that solves a whole lot of hassle for us just to have and I'm, i mean it worries me because i really love because i kind of grew up in that world the smell of printing ink and the craft of doing the things by hand but when it comes to getting stuff done on time there's there's some really good solutions out there yeah mm. now it probably goes without saying that you know the current covid19 situation has hit business all around the world incredibly hard um and you you kind of like uh you know hit it towards it earlier like you know you've kind of put some posts out there which are like i found incredibly inspiring posts and positive posts about kind of keep karma and carry on and trying to be that positive influence in a time where it doesn't sound too positive uh and like Without prying too much, like just how much has the kind of pandemic affected karma drinks? Well, you know, I'd be it'd be an understatement to say we're okay. You know, like anyone else in the world we're in at the moment, things have changed so radically. It's really yeah to know just how bad it is, but it's also difficult to know just how good it could be. So I'm in this kind of personal and professional quandary where I go, the opportunity to have a bit of time isn't. A bad thing you know it's kind of i've been writing this post today it's earth day tomorrow one of the people i work with reminded me that a few years ago he wrote a piece about a book by rachel carson called the silent spring hmm. and the quote was that um the only the thing that um she her thesis is that the mechanization of agriculture has ruined the ecology of farms and because of it, there are no bugs in the hedgerows because there's a use of pesticide is so prevalent. And because of that, there's no bird sound. So this title, Silent Spring, is about the absence of wildlife because of oh, right. it's a It's a seminal organic movement book. It sort of kicked off that movement. Now, I'm just having a find it. The interesting thing was she, um, she said this thing uh, It was basically given time life adjusts and a balance is reached and time is the essential ingredient to learning from nature and letting nature rebalance itself now her scale mm. of time was a long time but she said in the modern world there's no time and that's the problem we have we don't learn from us because we don't take a breath we are consuming and producing at such a high rate that we really just can't press pause but that's being forced on us now. And the pressing pause is what I think is something to really relish and do something with. Yeah. And the thing absolutely. we shouldn't do is race back into doing exactly what we have been doing. And I'm sure this is the, the kind of meme that is the meta meme at the moment is 
you know, now we've got time, what are we going to do with it? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that, that that's makes me hopeful. What, pessimistically, our sales dropped off a cliff, you know, in hmm. a week of this going from being a problem that wasn't local to one that was, you know. And even though in the ensuing months we'd been aware of what was going on around the world, you know, there was a, a frenzy of, oh, is this actually going to happen to us? Which I think everyone in the UK or anyone on one side of the world went through to, oh, it actually is. <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah. And then, uh, you know, what I guess having race, raced around and looked at furloughing and looked at COBILs and tried to figure out how long we'll be in this lockdown and how much we'll need and how we'll be relevant and useful to our customers and all those things. The, the, the place I'm at now anyway is that, you know, the pause button is definitely pressed. What do we do with the time we've got? And for us, it's we've got to get online. We've got to do digital better. We need to be able to replace the occasions that people used to consume our products and with ones that are accessible now. So that's, you know, online deliveries, things like that. Mm-hmm. Got to think about how those people that we really still want to be our customers will be in, you know, three months or however long it get, takes to get back to a more public life. Um, and, you know, what's the what's the environment we operate in going to be like then? And I, I don't think it'll ever come back to what it was. I think we've, you know, on a, from a pragmatic point of view, we're saying we'll be lucky to see sales back to 70% of what they were, but we might see them grow in other channels. Um, you know, we like to think that our ambitions to be able to export to other markets, to be selling in Europe and places like that could still happen. But, you know, all of that's on hold at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting, like, you know, I, like, I, fair enough, it's still, it's obviously still fresh because, you know, we've been in lockdown for however many weeks, so it's by no means going to happen soon. But I do, I'm, I always try and remain optimistic and I do genuinely believe that in times like this, in the same way of like, you know, the amount of interesting, innovative businesses or just different channels or whatever, you know, even like in a, you know, crowdfunded solutions to problems or whatever it may be that happened in 2008, that will happen here. Like, I think like during time of, you know, dire straits and things are in the shitter, like that's when some really great thinking and some really radical thinking from pretty creative people tends to happen. The thing I remember from when I studied as a kid is Tennessee Williams, the writer, playwright, said there's never any creativity without oppression. So Mm. what does that mean? Does that mean you have to be abused as a kid? What does that oppression mean? And then it's, I kind of think it's actually pressure, you know, this whole idea of needing to have the perfect context to do good creative work in is a bit of a misnomer for me because I think having this external pressure really forces you to, to adapt. And it's adaptation that is the, the challenge for us. You know, I've been listening to these business or listening in on, you know, these Zoom lectures and mm. forums lately to try and get a handle on this with some of the consultants that we work with and other things that I'm lucky enough to be engaged with. And there's, there's this theme of, you know, reacting, you know, first this sort of panic of scrambling and then the, the how do you, how do you uh, react and then how do you become resilient? You know, that the next thing is 
building resilience in your organization is everything because this is going to, it's like the muscle memory everyone absolutely needs is to be able to do well. When yeah, of course. I mean, from an organization point of view. And, you know, we've, we've got some challenges because we've made some changes recently. We've just got a new CEO on board who's amazing. But he's probably had the most unusual first 60 days of any CEO. <laughs> I can probably imagine. Yeah, I mean, he's gone from, wow, great company, really looking forward to this, to shit. <laughs> yeah. You know, we were selling stuff last week. We're not this week, you know? So, and then there's a whole lot of organizational changes that we plan that he's got to implement while you, like you said, things are going down the shitter. So it's a, it's a fascinating, and it's, you know, not without its challenges time, but it's, um, uh, you know, not to be too convoluted, but it, it is it is kind of energizing. I think something will come out of this, and it has to be good, because if it's not, we just won't survive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, precisely. You know, like I think you know, many companies will probably see a bit of a paradigm shift in how people, you know, you know, even how people discover, how people choose, how people buy, how people interact with your brands, kind of from here in will be pretty different to how it was before like yeah some of it will revert back but i think you know there is always opportunity there to kind of pursue somewhere it just like it might not be the same as it was before or as simple as it was before but you know it will still create opportunity it'll be interesting to see what bounces back i mean it's still really hard to make these predictions because it's you know this is not something we've done ever been through on this scale before yeah, because you know things haven't been as commercially complex in the world as they are right now, even though there may have been pandemics uh, in parts of the world before. Like we've already been in some way through one in Sierra Leone with Ebola, mm. and what happened there is kind of inspiring. You know, one of the things that came out of that, to go back to where we started about how we operate in that country, is that when that calamity struck. Some woman came, we, we first went, shit, you know, that was six months after that story about the bridge. And mm. we made friends with these people. and we, we had a strong relationship both commercially and kind of personally with them. And all of a sudden, our friends over there were, had their lives threatened by something that was like a horror movie, you know. Yeah. And we kind of went, right, right, we've got some money. What do you want to do with it? <laughs> What can we do? How can we be helped? You know, the first thing you want to do is we want to help. You know, we want to help. Like, how can you be helpful is a really interesting question because it's not that straightforward. Yeah, of course. See, so they really kind of calmly came back and it's like, it's okay. We've been through this shit before. It's not great, but this is Sierra Leone, right? In Sierra Leone, if something's going well, most people worry that something's about to not go well. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. So, that. So they said, or they, they, the chiefs said, look, don't stop what you're doing, which was code for anyone else who's helped us like you have as an external intervention in the past hasn't stayed the distance. So don't mm -hmm. go away. You know, and it was pretty good. I mean, they weren't kind of that casual about it, but they said, no, just keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. It was a really good lesson. Keep doing what you're doing. And then we said, well, great. So we will, right? And the, But the next thing yeah. was, Okay, we've got some money. We're going to help. We've got Albert's got family that work in medicine here and how can we connect some resources we know about and some other money we can get and get you 
into an investment for education, for what they call sensitization, which is basically teaching people hygiene, uh, some basic essentials like you know disinfectant and scrubs and the sorts of things we're seeing we need to provide for people here now. So we did that. But the most amazing thing that happened was a few weeks later, a few women from the village we principally trade with in Boma came to Michael, uh, the foreman over there, and said, look, could we borrow some money? Because we'd like to be able to go to the market town that's closest to the village to get grocery staples like salt and dried fish and flour and things that they couldn't get from growing in their own little farm mm. or having stored supply because the chiefs had quite cleverly quarantined all of these villages. Yeah. And so we said, of course, <laughs> what a great idea. So we basically lent them money to hire motorbikes so they could go and follow all the protocols to be able to bring these grocery goods back to the villages. And they set up little shops outside their houses or their huts. And this was our first kind of entrepreneurial loan, you could call it. I mean, it was based yeah. on money in a tin. But it started this thing because after that, there were others that came and said, can we make a loan? And we said, yeah, here's the loan, here's the deal because they had to pay the loans back. And it became a microfinancing scheme and a kind of local bank. And it really oh, wow. away. Now, we probably paid the first 20 to 30 of those. Um from money directly from the fund. And they that money has been recycled and used another three times. So there's oh, wow. of these women entrepreneurs that have gone off to set up shops and other bits and pieces. And they are, you know, they're earning an income. They've become financially independent through these loans. So that first we go, wow, that just happened. You know, we didn't have to do a lot for that to happen. That was the kind of karma of just making it available and then doing it and bringing it back. But the last time I was over there, I spoke to one of the second or third generation of these recipients of these loans, this very young, like 18, 19-year-old um, entrepreneur. And she said, I've been able to save some money. And I went, wow, that's amazing. And, and she, so I could loan it to my neighbour. So I went, what do you loan it for? She said, so he could go to hospital. I went, what? <laughs> so, so one of the things that I notice when we go there is that Albert and I or whoever else we're with, is often petitioned by people saying, my eyes are bad because of you know, eye problems or glaucoma is a problem over there. Or I've got a very sore abdomen and my hernias amongst middle-aged men are very common there because they work so hard and they you know, have these sorts of body failings. And you'd kind of go, well, we can't, I can't make an exception as much as I want to. All we were wrestling with was how could we create a kind of medical support system like do we have to build a hospital because we don't definitely don't have that amount of money or train some people to be nurses or get active mm. and we we're just trying to figure it out because it just kept happening you go okay i'd really and we had hindu one of the chiefs that we've become very close to had a terrible um uh, uh kind of turn and we weren't quite sure what it was so we ended up helping him get to hospital because we i just didn't really want him to be so unwell and yeah exactly. how do we do this in a way that is because one of our rules is it's got to be for the whole community without appearing to to be giving favors but but um amy had solved the problem she'd gone 
I lent some money to someone so they could get to hospital. Well, that's, wow. that's social health. So we said, look, just wait a minute. We're going to try and do this. We'll put money aside like we did with these loans. And anyone who needs to get to hospital can borrow it. And they, if they can pay it back, great. If they can't, we're not going to hassle them about it. But what we need yeah. to make sure is that people who need access to medical health, medical help, can get it. It's pretty simple because we don't have to build a hospital then. There's a hospital 30 kilometers away. We just got to get them to it. So that, that's mm. the answer, right? So we go, okay, let's test this. And Rachel and Albert, Rachel who manages our foundation and Albert, figured out that they could make someone in each of these communities responsible for that. And there was some, some theater around this because one of the things we're always very sensitive to is that if we give the money to a chief, there's some um, kind of stereotypical, not always valid um, assumption that money won't get down to the people who need it. So right. We have to get around the idea of corruption. It's not really corruption. It's just there's different ways of doing things there. But what we wanted to do was empower someone in the community to be the person responsible for this. So they very cleverly uh, had this ceremony in Sahum, I think, or one of the villages we work with where the chief ceremoniously gave this money or you know the token of this money to the person in the village who was going to be the sort of health officer who was going to manage the purse spring string so that anyone that needed it could come to that person and ask for the access you know and that way in an emergency if someone needed to get to the hospital or whatever other medical help we were going to supply or enable it had happened and it's been happening now at that ceremony there was a guy there who got up at the end and said I just want to thank you for all the people who aren't here. And you go, well, that's pretty strange. Wow. What's that about? <laughs> he says, there are people that aren't here that would have been here if this had been in place. That's the third thing. And the second thing is there are people here who've lent money to loan sharks to be a or borrowed money, sorry, from loan sharks to be able to do what you're enabling that aren't here anymore because they're working in the city to pay them off. Jesus. Yeah, what? Like this is stuff you just don't know about until you engage yeah. in these things. And I mean, the beginning of this story was what comes out of a terrible situation. You know, that mm. that started with the need to respond to Ebola, and it's yes. incredibly creative or, or or value creating both socially and economically and and humanly. That's brilliant. Like what a beautiful story and like a perfect example of what could come post COVID-19 as well. But uh, thank you very much for your time. I, I'm very aware that I've, we've gone over what I said we would go over, <laughs> but like uh, Simon, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, having you on the show and uh, what better way to wrap up than a beautiful story like that. Hey, thanks Gregor. Great to talk to you. And um, you know, please, uh, feel free to, to get in touch anytime. Uh, I will do. Well, when this is all said and done, we can actually have a catch-up face-to-face rather than... share <laughs> a cola with you in, in sunny Scotland. This... Yeah, precisely. Precisely. Like, where can people grab themselves some Karma Cola and uh, help support you guys at the moment? Best place to go at the moment is Amazon. Um, we've just kind nice. of restocked our shop there, so just uh, Google uh, Amazon search. Also, Waitrose and Mercado have us online, um, and we'll be launching other online services soon. So follow us on Instagram. Just 
Karma drinks or Karma Cola. Um, and uh, just keep in touch that way. We'll, we'll be pushing stuff out as, as, as it comes to hand. Sweet. I'll be getting on that as soon as possible and stocking up my fridge as well. Don't worry. Hey, thanks, Gregor. And um, um, have a nice lockdown. Uh, I'm sure I will. Uh, it's uh, sunny in sunny Scotland for a change, so can't complain during the lockdown. If you're stuck, at, if you're going to be stuck at home and in your garden, it may as well be sunny. So. Yeah. So, yeah. So to wrap up, folks, remember to hit uh, up your favorite podcast platform and hit the subscribe button, and that will make sure you get notified when a new episode goes up. And as always, if you are enjoying the show, hit the stars, leave a review, share the show with your friends. You have no idea how much it helps grow the show. And as always, please get in touch. Um, we're always keen to hear from everyone, whether it's a question, a guest suggestion, or whatever it may be. Ping me an email on methodinthepodcast at gmail.com. That's it from us here. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you found some Method in the Badness. <laughs>